Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Yeah? If we haven't met, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you. Um, we are we're about to start a new series in Mark. We just finished like six Marks, right? So this isn't like Mark number seven. This is the, the gospel according to Mark. This is like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like that one there. Um, did, did you guys get one of those, those uh, Mark journals? Hold it up if you got one, one of those little black ones. Okay, I'll explain what to do, but, but listen to me. We, we want you to bring that, either bring your Bible or bring that, take notes, like underline, circle, highlight, whatever, so that you can follow along through the text. This isn't just gonna be like a few good ideas, but we wanna walk through chapter by chapter to understand what this book is saying. Today, I'm gonna give you some background on what this book is about, but then we're gonna look at the first 15 verses of of this book. So Mark was this, um, this early writer, church historian, who actually shows up in the gospel, or in uh, the book of Acts. His name is John Mark. And he travels around with Paul, with some others, planting churches. This is a man whose life has been radically transformed by Jesus. Like completely reoriented, redirected, maybe like some of us in here. He goes and he, he gives this careful account of Jesus' life and ministry. And, and most likely the earliest church sources say, the earliest historical sources say that, that Peter was giving him kind of his eyewitness testimony of what it was like walking with Jesus. What it was like to be there when Jesus was preaching and healing and, and, and upending the world. This, this book is really interesting. And we'll, again, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background on that before we get into it, but, but Mark does some interesting things where like he'll compress sections like the first 15 verses we're going to spend today, other, other accounts spend like four chapters expressing what he spends 15 verses saying because he's moving you along. There's a lot of action. It's drive here. He's trying to get us to ask a central question that was vital to his life and the life of Paul who he traveled with, the life of Peter who spoke to him about this. The question is this, what are you going to do about Jesus? Like, what are you going to do about Jesus? Not, not just some nice teacher out there, not some kind of old philosopher, but this, this one who healed, who taught with authority, this one who upended the world around him, the one who, who history has to bend and move around, like you can't get past Jesus. What are you gonna do about Jesus? And so part of how Mark does that is he he gives you action and moments where people are face-to-face -face with Jesus and, and they have a choice to make. What am I going to do with Jesus? The, the book is split into kind of three sections. The first section is Jesus' early ministry around Galilee, where people are confused, like, where did he come from? What is he talking about? Who is this man? And then as his disciples kind of find, finally start to understand a bit of who Jesus is, he turns his face towards Jerusalem. He's on the road towards Jerusalem. And then finally, his, his ministry, the last few days before Jesus is killed, put on a cross, put in a tomb. And the book ends in this kind of strange way with an empty tomb and people having to grapple with the question, what do I do about Jesus? I don't know what brought you this morning. Maybe you came with a friend or maybe you feel like I need a little religion in my life or maybe you've answered that question a long time ago, what do I do about Jesus? But, but fundamentally underneath that question, there's a question we need to answer, which is who is Jesus? Who is he? I think if we polled people like on the street, we would get a crazy amount of answers, right? Like some would say, oh, he, he was a good man, a good teacher. Others would say, he's a myth, he's a legend. I, I had a professor in college. Um, I went to Iowa State University. 
I had a professor who, who taught biblical studies, and basically he was like, yeah, Jesus is probably a legend, it's whatever, not a big deal, right? Like his whole career was around teaching these things, and he's like, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But every religion, every people group around the world has this question like a rock in our shoe that we have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? We're going to spend the first 15 verses of, of Mark looking at Mark's answer to that. Now again, he's, he's kind of replying, or he's writing this thing with Peter's accounts, but this is the spot where we hear most of his voice. He'll step back after this and let other people tell their story, but right now he's going to give us a little taste. What does Mark think about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And listen to me, if, if you've settled for an answer less than you should have with this, that question will reorient everything about your life. If you've settled for something less than who Jesus actually is, this, this question is vital. And I, I wonder if for some of us in here, we feel like we've got the answer to that question. Like you settled it a long time ago, but, but if you look at your life, the kinds of things that happened to Mark's life or, or Peter's life or Paul's life, the kind of radical reorientation of everything about them, I wonder if you'd say that that's happened to you too. Like, let me just talk to the Christians in the room for a moment here. What if you've, what if you've said, yes, I, I know the answer to who is Jesus, but you've actually settled for something less than what Jesus wants to do in you, to you, for you? We're not just here to have, like, this neat conversation about the literary elements of Mark and whatever. Like, if you spend your connection group talking about the literary features of Mark, you've missed it, Okay. If we spend the next months just kind of unpacking this like any other book, we've missed it. This question, who is Jesus, and then what do we do about him? This changes everything. Everything about who we are as individuals and who we are as a church. If we miss this, we're stuck playing church games. And you don't need that in your life. Our city doesn't need that. I don't need that. But if we get this right, I think we're going to see something amazing. You ready? Nope, you're not ready. Okay, that's cool. Well, ready or not, here we come. Mark, chapter one, verses one through 15. This question, who is Jesus? And we're gonna hear Mark's own perspective a little bit more. Who is Jesus? Table of contents is your best friend if you, if you got a Bible, or it's like page one in those Mark journals, right? Somewhere around there? Okay, if you can't find that, I can't help you. Okay, Mark one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, the, the beginning of the, this word gospel we use a lot. Someone say gospel. Gospel means good news. The beginning of the good news. I'm going to tell you good news about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. Like, it wasn't like, oh, my dad is Joseph Christ. My mom's Mary Christ, right? But this is a, this is a title for him. We just sang like the word Messiah. That's the, the Hebrew word meaning anointed one in Greek. It's, it's Christ. The one who has been anointed, the one who's been called out specially empowered by the Father. Again, in just the first verse, Mark is saying there's good news you need to hear about this guy, Jesus. He is the, the Christ. He is the promised one. It says he's the son of God. I think too quickly we can fly over titles like this, but he, Mark came from a strict Jewish background. He probably grew up around Jerusalem. And so the idea that God has a son or the idea that, that Jesus could have the title son of God should be controversial to his first readers. Now again, we, we don't believe in multiple gods. That's not what he's saying, but he's trying to arrest our attention. 
Too quickly we can read things like this and go, oh yeah, a bunch of tiles for Jesus, that's cool, but he's going, no, 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 there's something about Jesus that makes him different than anyone else. He's not just another teacher or another prophet, there's something fundamentally different about Jesus. He is the one that has been promised, we've been waiting for, yes, but, but there's more to him than that. Okay, verses two and three, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. I will prepare your way. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. All through the Old Testament, there are these promises, these prophecies about Jesus coming. For generation after generation, people have been waiting for the one that would come, that would save. In Genesis 3.15, there's this promise that someone is gonna come and finally do battle with Satan and win. In Deuteronomy, there's a promise that someone is going to come like Moses with the authority to speak on God's behalf, who knows the Father face to face. There's a promise of a king coming who will will sit on David's throne forever, who will never leave that throne. There's a promise that there won't be a, a priesthood like the Old Testament anymore, but we'll have new hearts somehow. We won't need the blood of bulls and goats, but somehow God is gonna do something to show us that, that sin leads to death, but that, that ultimately there'd be a priest that would stand in the gap before us. Mark is telling us within the first three verses, hey, that one who has been promised for so long is here. He's coming, this is good news for you. But in, in this prophecy, there's, there's somebody coming who's gonna like prepare the way, and then there's the Lord himself coming. Verse four, John appeared. John, who we typically call like John the Baptist, not because he was a Baptist, right? He wasn't like preaching in a suit and and whatever, but like he he was the one baptizing, he had a ministry baptizing. Verse four, he appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word appeared there is kind of funny, right? He didn't like pop out of a bush somewhere like, hi guys, I'm here, John. But, But put yourself there. Like, put yourself in those moments where all of a sudden you hear about this religious movement happening. This guy, John, comes on the scene. You're not even sure where he's from, but, but he's preaching that people need to repent and be baptized. And not just any people, he's, he's actually doing ministry to, to God's people. At, at the time, like, the Jewish people were the, the ones, even though they'd been occupied by the Romans, they were the ones saying, we are still holding out hope that God will save his people. We're still holding out hope that God will send a savior, and then John comes and says, hey, it's not just those people out there who need to repent, it's actually us in here. We can't settle for just being from a religious background or knowing the right answers. We actually need to repent and we need to have a new heart. We need to invite God to give us a new heart. So John has this ministry to Jewish people who again knew the right answers, had the promises, had the Old Testament, had these hopes, but he's saying it's not enough for you to be born into it. It's not enough to have the right answers. You need a new heart. So he has a ministry of baptism for the repent, of repentance for forgiveness of sins. To repent means to turn away from something towards something else. And the people were saying, I, I need to turn from all the, the, the false answers I've had or the partial answers and turn back towards God. I need God to show up. I've sinned in my life he needs to deal with. Verse 5, all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This wasn't a small thing, but, but everyone was coming from around. This is a revival happening. Even Jerusalem, the centerpiece of the Israelite religion, people were coming and flocking, saying, we need God to show up. We need him. They're being baptized in the River Jordan. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Dude was weird, right? Like, he looked like how they thought a prophet should look. He's like smelly and eating weird food. Like, he looks like you would think like, oh man, that dude must be really holy, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, all all these weird pictures we get of, of what holiness is supposed to look like, they had a picture in their mind of what a prophet from the Old Testament would look like. These people hadn't seen a prophet before, but they had heard, man, prophets are strange people, right? And so when he shows up acting really strange, they're like, dude's a prophet for sure. He's wearing itchy clothes because he must really like be so close to God, he doesn't care about being itchy and smelly. That's awesome, right? Or he eats strange food because as a child, he's been set apart. He doesn't live in luxury in palaces or whatever. He's not close to power. He's, he's inviting people away from all of those distractions to something else. And he preached, verse 7, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, John, this guy who looks the part, this guy who is leading a massive revival, is saying, someone is going to come after me who I cannot even untie his sandals. Now, that, that might not, like, click with us right away, but, but back then people didn't have, like, awesome smart wool socks or whatever. They didn't have great waterproof boots. They were walking around in dust and dirt and dung. They're walking the streets where where donkeys have been going or whatever, so your feet were like the least clean part of you. And in their culture, they had a, a strict sense of like clean and unclean, like holy, set apart, and unholy. They would walk around day after day thinking because of the way that, that their, their life had been structured, like there's holiness and cleanliness I want in my life, and, and this part of my body, my feet, is like the least clean part of me. It's not just smelly, it's like you could get a cut on your foot and have infections and all of this stuff, it would be nasty. And John, the first prophet these people have seen in generations, This one who's leading a massive religious revival is saying, I am so unholy compared to the one coming after me, I can't even touch his least clean part. It'd be like saying, hey, I'm not good enough to even clean Jesus' toilet kind of thing, right? Imagine that, like, he is so far above me, I can't even scrape his toilet. This is, there's someone categorically different coming after me. And if John, this prophet, isn't even good enough for that, who, who is? Who can just go and, and be with Jesus and sit at his feet? They're, they're picturing someone coming in power and splendor and glory. They're, they're, they're picturing someone coming who's going to change everything about their life and their hearts. They want them to be ready for that. Jesus is, is unexpected, though, when he comes on the scene. We'll get into that in a minute. But, but he says in verse 8, I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we'll say Baptize. We, we get to baptize here on, on Easter Sunday coming up. Actually, next week we'll have um, like kind of an info session on baptism if you're interested. Baptism is this picture of going down under the water. And, and the way we use it as Christians is we say, okay, I'm, I'm dead to who I used to be with Christ. I've been raised to life. John was baptizing before Easter, before we had the picture fully of Jesus' death and resurrection. But, but it's this picture, I need cleansing from God. Now he's saying, Hey, not just water, not just dipping you in water to, to, to symbolize cleansing your body, but actually something fundamental is, is going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Just like when you go down under the water and come back up, you're drenched, you're covered. This one coming after me is going to fill you and saturate you with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, now for them, that was a radical promise. In the whole Old Testament, that wasn't something just open and available to people. You had to have a special assignment or a special role from God to be given the Spirit. There, there are even pictures in the Old Testament of the Spirit rushing on someone for a particular task and time. John is saying, the one coming after me is going to usher in a whole new era. Not just the Spirit for this moment or this task or this message, but your life will be saturated and filled with the presence of God. Your whole life can be coded and covered in enjoying God's presence, being with him, walking with him. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you. He will drench you. He will cover you. He will soak you in the spirit of God. These are incredible promises. This is incredible good news, and there was so much anticipation and expectation coming. And you, again, you would think when Jesus comes on the scene, this is going to be insane. When he comes on the scene, like, like the whole system is going to be different now. But, but Mark jumps through that quickly and just like sneaks Jesus onto the scene. I want you to see this with me. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized John, by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately saw, he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now there's a lot happening there, but in a few short verses, Mark conveys the beginning of Jesus kind of inaugurating his ministry, when other accounts of this spend paragraph after paragraph unpacking what's going on here. Like Jesus kind of just comes from his hometown, he's baptized by John, and, and it, it doesn't say anything about their conversation, anything like that. What we'll find in Mark is when guys like Peter, who are the eyewitnesses behind this, when they weren't on the scene, they're not going to fill in the details for us. If you want more of this, you can, you can read Matthew or even John's account of this. But Jesus shows up, gets baptized. Now, why is Jesus being baptized? He doesn't have any sin to repent of. He doesn't need a new heart. Mark isn't going to fill in those gaps and those details for us, but again, we see from other accounts why Jesus did this. He says things like, hey, this is to fulfill all righteousness. This is the plan of God from the beginning. It actually is fitting for me to, to be baptized before I begin this ministry. Again, Mark doesn't fill this in, but I just want to fill in that gap for you a little bit. Part of what Jesus is doing is he's, he's fulfilling this Old Testament storyline. Over and over through the Old Testament, God's people travel through water as kind of this, this sign of a transition of God's saving. You can, you can think of like the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. It's God's salvation. It's them being freed from slavery and God defeating their enemies before he points them towards the promised land. Or Noah and the ark. Or even as Israel's heading into the promised land, they cross through the Jordan on dry land. Over and over this happens in the Old Testament. And, it, and Jesus is saying, hey, actually all of those things, they really happened historically, but they were all pointing to me. He goes through the water before he begins this ministry of inviting people to himself to show that he is the true, the, the, the thing that all those pictures are pointing to, the true Israel they've been waiting for, the chosen one of God. And again, Mark records this so quickly, but, but there's a voice from heaven. The heavens are torn open and the spirit comes on him like a dove. When Jesus walks out his ministry, casting out demons and teaching and healing, he does it empowered by the spirit from here on. He, he doesn't do it because he's got like God cheat codes, but he actually is walking in full um, submission to the plan of the father by the power of the spirit. 
the Spirit descends on him. Up to this point, he's not healed anyone. He's not preached any messages. He's not cast out any demons. But this is the beginning of his ministry. And again, a voice comes from heaven saying, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The Father speaks identity over the Son, that he is loved. We see the Trinity kind of dancing here in these three. Now, does Jesus kick off a big ministry here? Does this revival that's happening all of a sudden kind of get redirected and start going towards him? Do all the people rally around and follow Jesus? Is that the plan that happens? Like, that's what they're expecting. That's what they're hoping, right? He's going to come in glory and power, and everything's going to be different. Who is this Jesus? He's not, he's not coming the way that we expect, though. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, He's not going to the center of power. He's not proclaiming uh, uh, himself to be the Lord that everyone should follow. In this moment, he goes out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He's with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. If you're new to the Bible, that is really weird, right? I mean, even if you're not new to the Bible, like that is odd that the spirit takes him into the wilderness and he's like, yeah, 40 days, tempted by Satan, all this stuff. Mark just flies past that. Again, if you want more, than, more of this, like in Matthew's account, he spends like half of a chapter in chapter four unpacking what was happening there. But I think what was going on was Peter's like, yeah, Jesus told me about that, like, but I wasn't there. So let's just let's keep going with the story, right? I wasn't an eyewitness to those things. I want to tell you from my perspective what happened. So by God's grace, we have a record of what was going on in the wilderness in those moments, but that's not Mark's main concern. One thing we do see, though, is this 40 days thing. It's another little clue pointing us back to the Old Testament because after God brought Israel through the Red Sea into the wilderness, they were there 40 years. There's kind of this poetry and harmony between what God did historically in the Old Testament and Jesus' ministry. So some of this who is Jesus question, Mark is trying to show us actually all those promises that Jesus fulfilled, all those those poetic pieces that Jesus fulfilled. He was tempted by Satan. He like does battle with Satan in the wilderness. And again, we get like one line of that. And then he moves on. Verse 14. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Again, really quick, like half a sentence. John is arrested. John is preaching. This revival is happening. He is leading the people. And then he, he runs afoul of the local king. There were these kings that the Romans set up to be over different people groups, and, and this king was named Herod. And he had taken his brother's wife, and John is like, hey, that's not right, man. You can't do that. And he's a prophet, so he's going to kind of say whatever the heck he wants, right? So, so Herod goes, I don't like you. I don't like what you're doing, but I, I can't just kill you right away. He takes him, he throws him in jail. And John's ministry is, is scattered at this point. And then Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel of God. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, this word gospel that we saw in verse one, this this good news, he's proclaiming again. He says, the time is fulfilled. All of the plans of God for generations, year after year, it's all coming together in these moments. The time is now. The kingdom is at hand. When he says at hand, he's saying it's like, it's right here, it's in front of you. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. And people had this expectation a king would come and kick out the Romans. He's going to establish a new political order, a new economic order, all these things. And and as we'll see in the weeks to come, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, it looks different than this. 
But he's the one proclaiming the kingdom and he himself is the king on the throne. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is a place where a king rules, right? You've got a king, you've got their, their actual location, like the place where their rule is established. You've got their rule and authority, their laws. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, God's reign and rule and authority will, be, will begin to be felt in my presence. In the lives of the people around me, God's rule and authority will be established here. Repent and believe in the gospel and this good news. Repentance is turning from and belief is turning towards. I, I don't necessarily love the word belief sometimes in our culture because we use belief for all kinds of things, right? We're like, hey, do you believe toppers is good pizza or not? Like, whatever, do you, right? Do you, do you believe the earth was made in seven days or, or longer than that or whatever? Like, we use the word believe for, for stuff that could be opinions sometimes. Believe here is not like, do you have like a nice opinion? It's closer to trust. You turn from something and you turn towards trusting Jesus. I believe in this good news. Okay, 15 verses. There's a lot going on there. And again, other accounts spend chapters unpacking what Mark flies through. Paragraphs for what he spends two verses on. Look back at this with me. What commands do you see for, for yourself or for someone around? Look at it. Like, I know you've got one in front of you, so just look at it quick. Do you see any commands that are like, now, Doxa, in 2023, you should do this? Does this feel like it, it hits some of the, the main questions you've got about, like, finances or relationships or whatever? I think one of the uncomfortable things that we're going to experience in Mark is it doesn't always feel like a one-to-one of like, okay, I read this and now I've got, you know, four easy steps for healing broken relationships or something like that. It doesn't quite work like that, and, and that's intentional. Mark doesn't want to give you like a comfortable, neatly packaged answer. Sometimes he wants to give you a question, and he wants to show you how, how people have answered that question in their lives and, and also how that question was answered for him. Again, he's not trying to give you a a couple neat tidbits for your life. He's trying to draw your attention somewhere else. Someone say attention. He's trying to draw your eyes to look at something. Look at what he's trying to draw your attention to. Look at the descriptions and the aspects of Jesus that he's slammed through in these 15 verses. I'm just going to summarize the things that he is trying to draw your attention to. He says, this good news is about Jesus So there's good news that will be proclaimed for the next 16 chapters about Jesus. It centers on him. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one that people have been waiting for. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one that that Isaiah prophesied about, the one that all the Old Testament promises and hopes were fixed to. Jesus is the one John was preparing the way for. This revival ministry was all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is so holy and high above John that that John wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is the one that baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one whom the heavens were torn open for, the one the Spirit descended on, the one that the Father said, this is my Son. I'm pleased with him. Jesus is the one that was tempted by Satan and won in the wilderness. Jesus is the true and better Israel who passed through the water and who who survived the wilderness trial faithful to God. Jesus is the one the angels minister to. Angel armies are at his beck and call. 
Jesus is the one proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is the one that all the time was fulfilled in. It was pointing to him. Jesus is the one inviting people to repent and to trust him. This, this Jesus that he's putting on display, this is the one that we are supposed to ask the question, okay, what do I do about him? And to get there, you have to ask the question and answer it, who is Jesus? I think if I have to summarize what Mark is saying in these 15 verses, he's saying Jesus is the one worth your attention and worth your life. He's the one worth your attention. Like, look at him. Look at this one that he's trying to put on display. Look at him. And when you see him, when he's worth your attention, you'll find he's worth your life. Now, again, texts like this and and narrative in Scripture can be uncomfortable for us because we love to-do lists. We love stuff that we're supposed to do and and ways that we're supposed to change and whatever, and and change will happen when you look at Jesus, but something else has to change first. I think it can be a weakness in our faith when we run so quickly to to to-dos, like when we run so quickly to action steps that we miss, we miss looking at him. If you remember our Marks of a Disciple series, that first one we said, being is greater than doing. Not that we skip doing, not that we skip obedience, but that first we want the heart of Mary before the hands of Martha. We want to look at Jesus. Like, is it uncomfortable for you to look at Jesus without a quick to-do, without a quick action step for you in your life? I wonder if maybe some of the lack of change that we've experienced, the lack of transformation that, that Mark experienced or Paul experienced or Peter experienced, I wonder if the lack of that in us comes because we too quickly move our attention away from Jesus. This is the connection between being a worshiper and being a becomer. I, freshman year of college, lived in an apartment with, with some guys. And this is one of those like legacy apartments where a bunch of other guys had lived there first and you could tell because of the layers of smell and grime, right? Like multiple generations of dudes in the house and um, we weren't great at cleaning. We had, we had a lot going on for us though. We had like a, a double layer sofa in the, in the living room. You know what I'm talking about? You put the cinder blocks and you put a sofa and then you put another one in front of it so you can watch each other play video games, you know? You guys can't relate to that? That's weird. Okay. Um, and when I first showed up in the house, like when I first moved in, I spent two days cleaning because like the bathtub had never been cleaned before. Like no one had vacuumed. We didn't own a vacuum. Like I spent multiple days cleaning. And, and as I lived there longer, I kind of settled into the routines of the house where like one of my roommates, love him dearly to this day, but he would go work at a, at a sandwich shop and then come home and not shower and just fall asleep on the couch and do that day after day after day. And that couch was stanky, right? And, but we all got used to it. We all got comfortable with it. Like that was kind of the status quo that was normal. We kind of forgot about it. Until some girls started coming along, right? Like, now again, this didn't like radically upend our lives, but we started to think a little bit differently about how many dishes we're going to leave in the sink or, you know, whether or not we should shower sometimes. Like, some of those things started to change when, when some girls came by. Our attention, we'd gotten so used to the status quo and how things were, all of a sudden, all of a sudden something else caught our attention because these girls came by. I, I think there's something fundamental to how we change that we can miss when we focus so much on the to-do list. See, action is a part of the Christian life for sure, but but maybe we go too quickly to, to the list of things Christians are supposed to do and not do, and we miss the heart transformation underneath it. Like, think about reading your Bible, okay? You were supposed to read your Bible. 
You, you know that, right? If, if you were surprised by that news, there you go. Reading your Bible is good for you, okay? But have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Like, sometimes we try to grit our teeth and get through it, and I'm just going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, we find our doing sort of run short. Our action, our, our willpower, whatever, kind of it starts to dry up. Or maybe there's been a sin struggle in your life that has been so deep and ingrained and intertwined and you don't know how to get past it. And you try all the things, all the steps, all the whatever, and you can't seem to, you can't seem to, to move your heart. Part of what Mark is trying to show us is that your attention shapes your affection, shapes your heart. Your eyes actually shape what your heart loves or longs for or cares about, and then your heart shapes your action. Like attention leads to affection and affection leads to action. If you start with action only, the list of to-dos and don'ts, and your heart never moves, eventually your heart is gonna catch up with your hands. Eventually the things that you really love or long for or care about, those are gonna rule your action. We didn't care that our apartment was messy or smelly or whatever until our hearts moved a little bit, until something else moved our hearts and then our attention was reoriented around vacuums things we didn't care about by ourselves. Like maybe in the Christian life, your attention has been placed on other things and, and you've been seeing it in your action. What Mark is trying to do in you is he's trying to set your attention back on Jesus because if Jesus is actually worth your life, he's, if he's actually gonna get your life, he first needs to get your attention. Mark doesn't give you a to-do this morning so much as he puts Jesus in front of you and says, look at him. Look at him. Look at all that he is. Look at who he is because I know, I know if you look at him, if you just see him for who he is, if you get this answer right, who is Jesus, it's gonna change everything about you. There is obedience. We do need to, to follow in obedience, but we don't start first with trying hard to be good enough for God or anyone else. We start by looking at Jesus. And when you see him for who he is, your heart begins to move and your hands follow from there. This morning, I, I know some of us in the room are not Christians. And you're like, okay, dude, literary features of Mark, cool. Like all these prophecies, cool. I don't get it. Let me just beg you to, to begin looking at Jesus for who he is. Don't write off Christianity because you've met some Christians that are, that are weird or whatever. Or don't, don't write it off because you feel like, I don't know if I belong. Just look at Jesus with me. He came proclaiming a kingdom, and what we'll see at the end of Mark is he is the good king that stepped off his throne. God himself, God in flesh, stepping off his throne to make a way for you to be with him. He doesn't come as a king first, just, just proclaiming, submit to me and try harder to do better. He comes first humbly saying, hey, I want to wash you and make you clean to be part of my kingdom. And he does it through his death on the cross, his resurrection for you. What are you going to do about Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, just accept his invitation to repent and believe the good news is that he came for you. Repentance is not just the, the gateway into the Christian life. It is the Christian life. This morning, if, you're, if you are a Christian and you're looking at your life and you're going, okay, I don't know if I've experienced this kind of radical transformation. Or there's some stuff in my life I haven't dislodged yet and I've been, I've been trying hard or whatever. Would you, would you repent and believe again? 
I'm not saying get saved again, but I'm saying turn again from what has your attention and from what's been capturing your heart back to Jesus. Even good things can capture your heart in a way that they shouldn't. Just to confess, guys, this week my attention has been on my, like, kids who are sick and whiny this week, or finances. Like, like my attention is just drawn to all kinds of other things that seem to have my heart and my eyes. And so I can't, I can't get my action right if I don't first put my attention back on Jesus. What has your attention? And maybe you need to repent of, of trying to do this whole Christian thing on your own strength. Like maybe you need to repent of getting the process wrong where you've been working so hard to have the right action and the right obedience that you haven't put your eyes on Jesus in far too long. Even your best efforts to be faithful and pray and read and whatever, maybe those things, maybe those things have become about you and your attention has been off. Would you turn back to him again? Some in here I know we're struggling if we were sitting down and talking and you were saying, yeah, I, I want my attention on Jesus, but look at the stuff in my life. Look at the suffering. Look at the things that are really going on. I, I think this question, who is Jesus, it still matters to you. Whatever the diagnosis, whatever that conflict, whatever that, that pain that you've had in your life, who is Jesus is still the question. Put your eyes back on him. When you look at him, it will put everything else in perspective. It might not make it easy necessarily. It might not make it go away, but it will change everything. This king proclaiming a kingdom for you is a good king, even with what you're going through right now. And if you want to experience the strength to get through, it only comes from looking back at him. Put your eyes on Jesus. Give him your attention and let your affections, let your heart move from there. Jesus said something that, until really studying this passage, I don't know if I fully got, but in, in Matthew 6, 22, he says, the eyes are the lamp of the body. Have you guys heard this before? It's a weird thing to say, right? Because we, we have phrases like the eyes are the window of the soul or whatever, but this is different. Jesus is saying the eyes are the lamp of the body. What, what gets your eyes actually changes what goes on inside of you. What gets your focus changes what's going on inside of you. This whole attention, affection, action thing is Jesus is talking about how we are wired as people. What gets your eyes is going to begin to reshape your thought pattern, your heart, and what you long for. And over time, your heart will come out. Maybe, Christian, you've been stagnant for too long because other things have had your heart. And you've settled for good answers about Jesus you can pass the Bible quiz. Great, good for you. But you settled for playing church or adding Jesus into your plans. Like you might even say, yes, Jesus is worth my attention, but is he worth my life? Every piece of it, every single facet and corner of my life, can I actually submit and surrender every single piece to him? I think the only answer we have is yes. The only answer we have looking at these 15 verses with Jesus on display in front of you is yes. The one who would step off his throne for you. Would you say yes to him again today? Doc says we go through Mark, I don't want us to play church games and I know you don't want that either. That's not what we need. That's not what our city needs. It doesn't need us to, to be a bunch of people that like sing some nice songs and then, and then leave with our lives unchanged. But the way that we get there isn't beating ourselves up or trying harder to be religious or whatever. The way that we get there 
is looking back at Jesus, setting our attention on him and letting him reorient and rewire everything about us. So this morning, let's invite him to do that. And if we play that out over the next months as we go through this book, what do you think would change in your life? What do you think would change in in your fears or your worries? What would change in your relationships if your eyes were fixed on Jesus over and over as the reflex of your soul? I think everything. Are you ready for it? Let's pray and invite him to do that a little bit more in us today. Jesus, I confess this morning my attention goes so many places. My heart gets wrapped up in so many different concerns and worries and, and I feel like I can't get my life like charging after you in the way that you really are worth it. Would you help us get out of our own way this morning and put our eyes back on you? Jesus, would you capture our attention in the way that you really do deserve and from there, would you change everything about our lives? And I even pray this morning if, if that idea provokes fear in some of us, like the things that we would give up if, it, if we really were gonna give you our whole life, would you, would you meet us in those places? Would you show us again how worthy and beautiful you are, worthy of everything? And you teach us to respond to who you are like that. We pray in your name. Amen. Doc said, Jesus gave us a way to, to fix our attention on Jesus together. It's called communion. We look back at the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his body broken for our sin, the final sacrifice. His blood shed to wash us that we would be clean before God and covered in his righteousness. So this morning over the, over the next couple songs as the band plays, I just wanna invite you to set your attention on Jesus again. Maybe take a minute on your seat and, and look through one of the, the things about Jesus that caught your attention. Praise him for who he is and then when you're ready, get up, go to one of the stations around the room and take communion to set your attention back on him and continue with us in worship.